Hello and welcome back to The Bedside. My name is Matt Stutz and I'm the host of the At The Bedside series on the ATS Breathe Easy platform. It's great to have you back. Today we're going to tackle a commonly encountered problem in the ICU, thrombocytopenia. And to help us go through that case, I'm really excited to have Dr. James Walter from Northwestern University. He is a Associate Program Director for both the PCCM Fellowship and the Internal Medicine Residency. Welcome, Dr. Walter. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to join the po podcast and discuss a case with you. Great. Well, why don't we uh, jump right in? So as I mentioned, today we're going to focus on thrombocytopenia in the ICU. We're going to talk about uh, when to work it up, when to treat, uh, common pitfalls, and those scary situations like HIT or TTP or HUS or those things that get all the intensivist uh, willies going. So uh, to get things started off, have a 65-year-old woman who presented to the ICU with septic shock due to cholecystitis. She's been in the ICU for about a week. She's been on antibiotics. She's had a biliary drain place for source control, uh, and she's had improvement of her septic shock and is now perfusing well. Today on rounds, the very diligent residents let you know that the platelets have been steadily decreasing for the last five days, and she's gone from 312 to 45 and ask, well, what should we do? What's your approach? So I, I guess I'll just start out by acknowledging that and how, how common of a problem this is for us in the ICU. Uh, depending on the study that you look at, roughly half of patients who are admitted to the ICU develop thrombocytopenia at some course uh, in their critical illness. And I think it's also reasonable to think about thrombocytopenia to some extent as a marker of illness severity. Uh, patients who develop thrombocytopenia during their ICU stay, a patient, especially patients where the thrombocytopenia is prolonged, uh, have consistently higher mortality rates than patients who don't have thrombocytopenia. I think it's also important to point out that it's uncommon we find a single cause for thrombocytopenia in the ICU. Uh, in studies of very well phenotyped patients, over a third of patients with thrombocytopenia had more than three or more identifiable causes for their low platelet count. So we have a really common diagnosis that rarely has a single cause. And I, I think that's a recipe for a frustration for clinicians at the bedside. So I do think given that it's, it is really helpful to have a structured way to think through thrombocytopenia at the bedside. Uh, as with a lot of things in the ICU, I think a reasonable first step is to just ask, do you need to act first or do you actually have some time uh, to think things through? So as my first step, I would just wanna know does this patient have any signs of active severe bleeding? I think that would push me to focus first on supportive transfusions before spending a lot of time uh, ordering some diagnostic tests. I love that practical approach and, and getting into the things that, that we might need to, to intervene on first before spending too many um, hours thinking about uh, what might be causing it. So uh, our patient, thankfully, has no signs of acute blood loss. The um, hemoglobin has actually been uh, within a gram of the baseline. And uh, on your physical exam, you know, just like any good intensivist, you're suspicious that there is a procedural complication. But on a look, you know, the, the biliary drain uh, site looks to be really clean, dry, uh, intact. There's no kind of palpable fluid collection around there. And you also reviewed the interprocedural note, and, and they, don't, they don't note any particular trouble during the procedure. So the patient's overall been unchanged in their clinical course and, and seems to be uh, moving forward. Okay. Uh, that's reassuring. It, it tells us that we have some 
time to implement a more stepwise approach to diagnostic testing. Uh, if you told me the patient did have active bleeding, I think it's important to know that there's consensus that platelets should be kept above uh, 50,000 cells per microliter. And if that if there was a worry about intracranial bleeding, then that threshold rises to above 100,000. Right, right. That sounds like a, a pretty logical branch point. And thank you for giving us those uh, guideline-supported thresholds. So now we're, we're kind of in the non-emergent setting. W- what would your next steps be? Yeah, I think with any abnormal lab value, especially if it's a, a quite a sudden change from recent results, I think it's worth confirming that that's a real value before you order a lot of uh, diagnostic tests. And actually exposure to the EDTA and a lot of the blood collection tubes that we use can actually cause in vitro platelet aggregation and clumping that can lead to a falsely low platelet count. So as a first step, I would just look to see if there's any note of platelet clumping in the lab results or on a peripheral blood smear. And if that's present, then to repeat the sample with a blood tube that has citrate or uh, heparin to obtain a more accurate value. I love that that first branch point, especially when uh, you can pick off a problem that's not actually a problem. So uh, unfortunately here, the uh, lab does note that the platelet cloud grossly appeared to be low, uh, and then there didn't appear to be any clumping. And then so we got that that citrated uh, tube uh, in process. Um, but as we're, we're waiting for that, where does your mind go next? Do you, do you think about the differential in any particular kind of context or order after ruling out emergencies or bad data? Sure. Um, I think I would bet if you asked 10 different intensivists about their approach to thrombocytopenia, you'd probably get 10 different answers. So I'm happy to walk through how I think through things at the bedside, but certainly don't want uh, listeners of this podcast to think this is the only way to approach this really common problem. And given how many different things can cause thrombocytopenia in critically ill patients, I think a reasonable first step is to evaluate for life-threatening causes of thrombocytopenia, especially those that have specific treatments. And for me, that means excluding a primary thrombotic microangiopathy and also looking for drug-induced thrombocytopenia, especially one you had already mentioned, uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. I think as you're thinking about, well, what test should I start with uh, in a thrombocytopenic patient? I think having a CBC with differential a peripheral blood smear, coagulation studies, and then testing for markers of fibrinolysis, like a D-dimer and a fibrinogen, are really important as these tests, when combined, can really help rapidly narrow your differential diagnosis. Certainly sounds like a reasonable approach. Could you break down the uh, thrombotic microangiopathic uh, anemias a bit for us? Sure. So thrombotic microangiopathy, it's a pathologic term used to describe microvascular thrombosis in the small arterioles and the capillaries. And the clinical hallmarks that you'd recognize at the bedside are microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, or MAHA, and then thrombocytopenia. And the TMAs, they could really be their own podcast. There's a lot to unpack. Um, I think it's important to know that there's both primary and secondary TMAs. And the distinction there is the primary TMAs result from a defined abnormalities. These are disorders like thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome. The secondary TMAs are TMAs that result in the setting of an underlying disorder. These would be things like TMAs in the setting of preeclampsia or TMAs secondary to connective tissue disease. And treatment of the secondary TMAs is really focused on treating the underlying disorder. Uh, So perhaps best for this podcast to discuss a primary TMA, uh, one we think about a lot, like TTP. So in adults, uh, which is my world in the ICU, TTP usually results from the production of an autoantibody 
against AdamTS13. AdamTS13 is a von Willebrand factor cleaving protein. And if you don't have enough functional AdamTS13 around, you get a buildup of these von Willebrand factor multimers. These accumulate, they cause platelet aggregation, activation, and then the formation of microthrombi. I think a lot of listeners on this podcast will remember the clinical pentad of TTP that a lot of us learn in medical school. That's MAHA, thrombocytopenia, neurologic symptoms, renal impairment, and fever. So unfortunately, despite the learning we did in medical school, that pentad is exceptionally uncommon. And presenting symptoms can be really nonspecific and include things like nausea, abdominal pain. So I think if you have, for me, if you have lab evidence of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia, it's reasonable to consider TTP regardless of how much of the rest of that pentad you complete. So for this patient to evaluate for MAHA, I would look for markers of hemolysis, things like indirect bilirubinemia, an elevated LDH, a low haptoglobin, an elevated retic index, and then also have a, a peripheral blood smear evaluated to look for the presence of schistocytes. And importantly here, coagulation studies in TTP uh, should be normal. Awesome. So you'd look for fever, renal insufficiency, evidence of hemolysis and, and neurologic changes. So our patient um, has had fever in the last 24 hours. However, um, the overall fever curve is improving. Um, also had an AKI associated with um, their sepsis, but also improving, but still hasn't re reached a creatinine or GFR within normal limits, but is certainly encouraging. And then on uh, the peripheral smear, you do not note any signs of hemolysis. In a setting like this, would you um, take the workup to the next level and order the Adams TS-13? Or, or how do you think about the threshold to send this test? Yeah, I think given the, the STEM you just presented, uh, while there are a lot of vague presenting symptoms for patients coming in with possible TTP, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia are essentially universally present in patients with TTP. So if you don't have evidence of hemolysis and you don't have schistocytes on a blood smear, I think you pretty confidently ruled out TTP. There is a score, it's called a plasma, plasmic score, that can be used to help determine your pretest probability of TTP. Uh, it's found really easily online, can be calculated at the bedside. If you plug in this patient's uh, clinical parameters, their plasmic score is very low. Also, just supporting that your pretest probability of TTP here is, is very low. So in this setting, I wouldn't send any additional TTP-specific uh, testing given um, the absence of MAHA, no evidence of schistocytes, and the low plasmic score. Uh, just to be complete, if you are worried about TTP, I think a really important clinical point uh, for clinicians at the bedside is that you need to initiate treatment for TTP, that's plasma exchange, urgently. You should certainly send out the Adams TS-13 level, but it takes a long time to come back. So you shouldn't wait for that uh, before initiating plasma exchange. That's great. You certainly don't want to be waiting for a lab result to the patient's detriment. So that's really a, a key uh, point of starting therapy before you, you may or may not have the lab result back. As we're kind of wandering through um, thrombocytopenia here, it, it's kind of getting me thinking about possible DIC. How would you approach that? Yeah, so DIC is a complex disorder. It results from dysregulated intravascular activation of the coagulation and fibrinolytic cascades. The end result of both of those is propagation of microvascular thrombi that causes organ dysfunction. And then often also at the bedside, we see uh, evidence of bleeding at sites of things like IV catheters. Uh, if you look at patients with DIC in the ICU, sepsis is by far the most common risk factor. 
responsible for over half of the DIC cases uh, in a typical ICU. Other important causes of DIC, depending on the site where you work, could be things like trauma, malignancy, and liver failure. At the bedside, the clinical hallmarks of DIC include MAHA, thrombocytopenia, so just like the primary TMAs we talked about, uh, but here abnormal coagulation studies, so an elevated PT and PTT, and evidence of fibrinolysis. So that would be things like an elevated D-dimer and a low fibrinogen. So just want to emphasize um, the, the abnormal coagulation studies here, which is a really important clue to get you thinking about DIC as opposed to primary TMAs like TTP. There is a validated DIC score. It's available online, uh, pretty easily calculated at the bedside to help you make this diagnosis. Wonderful. That's really helpful, much more helpful than what I remember doing as a, as a trainee, um, really just picking uh, several of the hemolysis labs and deciding whether you really thought uh, uh, DIC was present or not. So that uh, standardized approach is, is really en enlightening. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. We have a calculator as, as well that it really helpfully kind of shows up, you know, when, when we send off a DIC quote unquote panel. Um, and, it, and it asked me to recalculate it daily and, and recalculate the score daily. You know, why is that? Yeah, I think the idea there is to, with daily calculation, it allows you to more confidently rule in or rule out DIC, especially in a critically ill patient with an evolving clinical scenario. I think, of course, there's only so many scores you can calculate for every patient uh, on round. So I have to admit, I don't calculate a DIC score for every one of my thrombocytopenic patients every day, but I do think it's important to, to be aware of that concept. Uh, so for our patient, uh, I would definitely ensure that we have coagulation studies and then markers of fibrinolysis to help inform our pretest probability for DIC. As this patient you described, they're certainly at high risk with their septic shock. Right. It seems like DIC certainly could be um, playing playing a role here. Um, well, before maybe we we settle into to that diagnosis, um, is there anything else that we should we should think to to rule out? Yeah, I think new thrombocytopenia in the ICU for me uh, mandates a careful review of the patient's both recent and then current medications, as drug induced thrombocytopenia is such a common cause of thrombocytopenia in the ICU. And drugs can cause thrombocytopenia through a couple mechanisms, both um, immune and non-immune mediated thrombocytopenia. A lot of drugs suppress marrow production of platelets causing thrombocytopenia. A common one uh, here would be something like linazolid. If you have a patient who has severe isolated thrombocytopenia, so typically here a level less than um, 20,000, that for me raises concern for a drug-induced immune thrombocytopenia. This typically occurs roughly five to seven days after exposure to a causative medication. Uh, HIT is a specific drug-induced immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, and that gets invoked a lot on IC rounds for sure. Right. We, we both said it now. We, we might as well uh, con confront it, even though it's a, it's a, it's a challenging problem to, uh, to adjust. So I think the, the, next, the next step that, that we end up doing is yet another score. As you mentioned, there might be a component of score fatigue on rounds, but this is certainly one that, that's worth calculating. So um, that's the four T scores looking to, to diagnose uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So the first um, is the degree of thrombocytopenia uh, for which a fall greater than uh, 50%, and then a nadir uh, greater than 20K gets you two points. Uh, if there's less than a 50% decline and a nadir between 10 and, and 20, uh, zero or one points is obtained. 
our patient is kind of fitting into the high risk category there. So got two points. The next T is the timeline. So a platelet count fall within five to 10 days of heparin or within one day of a re-exposure to heparin. So our patient had a fall within five to 10 days, but but it, it wasn't so clear as she was kind of drifting down earlier on in the admissions. So, you know, that, that leaves her with a, a single point. The third T is thrombosis manifested with, with clot or tissue necrosis. Our patient doesn't have uh, proven clot in, in her presentation, but uh, on, on rounds, the, the nurse brings up the left upper extremity is swollen and or you think it deserves a, an evaluation. And so she gets a point for maybe a, sus, a suspected clot. And the fourth T is uh, if you have other causes, which she certainly does. She has the the kind of dreaded 4T of four. So what do you do and, and what does this mean to you? Sure. Uh, so just remember that, that HIT is caused by production of host IgG antibodies against platelet factor four heparin complexes. Uh, the end result here is platelet aggregation and thrombin formation. But while, so while we talk about HIT a lot on ICU rounds, it's actually a really uncommon diagnosis to make, especially if you're not working in a post-cardiac surgery ICU where this is best described. HIT usually presents with isolated moderate thrombocytopenia. So for me, if you see a platelet count less than 20,000, that should get you thinking of things uh, other than HIT. And importantly, while a lot of um, causes of thrombocytopenia are associated with bleeding, it is unique in its thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, including arterial thrombosis and thrombosis in unusual vascular bed like mesenteric vessels. So if you have new thrombocytopenia above 20,000 and new clots, that should definitely get you thinking about HIT. Now, this typically occurs five to 10 days after starting heparin, although an important caveat here is in patients who are exposed to heparin within the prior 80-ish days, that drop uh, can be much more acute. So it is really helpful here to have a medication history. Uh, because true HIT is pretty uncommon and up to 20% of patients who've been exposed to heparin actually may have detectable IgG against these platelet factor four heparin complexes, the evaluation for HIT should really follow a stepwise approach that's grounded in some assessment of pretest probability. And this is most commonly done like you nicely walk through with the 4T score. So if you have a 4T score of less than four, you've pretty confidently ruled out HIT and uh, no real indication for pers uh, pursuing other serologic testing. If your patient has a 4T score of four or more, then moving stepwise uh, typically begins with an ELISA looking for HIT antibodies. If that ELISA is negative, then you've pretty confidently excluded HIT. If the ELISA is positive, then you should send for confirmatory testing. This is most typically done with a test called a serotonin release assay. This is a functional assay that looks for in vitro platelet uh, activation when exposed to both patient serum and heparin. Got it. And so in this case, it, it seems like uh, we should send off those tests. And at least um, in, in my practice environment, those tests take a little bit of time to come back. So you have a probability of, of hit that warrants sending the test. What do you do in the meantime? Yeah, so I think if you have an intermediate or high pretest probability for HIT, I think anticoagulation should be transitioned away from heparin to something like a direct thrombin inhibitor like Argatraban or a 10A inhibitor like Fondaparinox, and continuing that until confirmatory testing either confirms, rules in a diagnosis of HIT, and in that case, 
that non-heparin anticoagulation should be continued. Or if you exclude a diagnosis of HIT, then you can confidently go back to heparin-based anticoagulation. Got it. The mortality of untreated HIT is really high and, and deserves some attention. And so that's why the, the test and, and treat while you're waiting for the result is, is so important to, to implement at the bedside. Is there anything else that you would use to, to round out your evaluation here? Sure. I, I think it's always important to ask if your patient is septic, uh, like our case here, even if they don't have DIC as this is a really common cause of thrombocytopenia in the ICU. And then depending on the studies you look at as a contributor to thrombocytopenia in upwards of 75% of cases. There are a lot of other causes of thrombocytopenia in the ICU, the setting of dilution and, uh, for patients who receive massive transfusion. You can have thrombocytopenia from shearing uh, in the presence of support devices like an intraaortic balloon pump or ECMO. Uh, but usually, the, if those are uh, contributing to your patient's thrombocytopenia, those are really uh, readily identifiable uh, given the, the clinical context. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Walter. This was such a, an educational walk through a very common issue in the ICU, and I feel like I'll be much better uh, equipped to approach it after uh, listening to your, your organized approach. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and uh, supporting the American Thoracic Society, and hope you have a, a wonderful rest of your day. Great. Really appreciate the opportunity to uh, chat with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, this program is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. However, the opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent that of the American Thoracic Society or the organizations of the participants. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope to see you next time.